Hello and welcome to the 20 Minute Hit, the sports podcast that tackles all the big stories from the last week and puts them into bite-sized, compact, manageable pieces. Almost like the dairy milk, if you will, of podcasts, but we think a lot smoother. I'm Ollie Wilson, sports commentator and broadcaster for the Football League and Talk Sport. Joining me, as always on the show, is my co-host, Mr. Paul McDonald, the esteemed sports journalist himself. Paul, a pleasure to speak to you again, my man. How are you this week? You're probably a very happy chappy after the rugby last weekend. Yeah, I'm actually really enjoying this Rugby World Cup and I really thoroughly enjoyed Wheels' comeback last Saturday, so I'll be interested to talk about that. We do have a special guest joining us on the show as well, Paul, uh, one of your very good friends, Mr. Raider Mayer, Goal.com's Head of Features. Raider, a pleasure to have you on board, mate. How are you this, uh, this, this morning, I was about to say, but I suppose it's morning for you and afternoon for us at the moment. It's lunchtime for me in New York, yes. Oh, does this mean you've got the big deli sandwich and everything like that ready to go? No, um, I put on about two stone after moving here, so I'm currently not eating at all, ever. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, probably not the yeah. right kind of diet, but uh, I'll tell you what, you we'll, know, uh, we'll, fill your time up. Yeah. we'll fill your time up at lunch with a, a bit of sports discussion as we take the five biggest stories from the last week, put them down into three-minute chunks and dive straight into all the debate and action around them. And we're going to kick things off uh, with the rugby. I'm going to let Paul just have uh, his little swan song about this. Wales against England last weekend and the Welsh pulling up a big upset at Twickenham. Uh, England now have to beat Australia to have a chance of getting out of their group and into the main part of oh, the knockout stage of the tournament. A 28-25 victory for Wales. Paul, England just completely blew this, didn't they? Yeah, I'm going to start by caveating to say that I think uh, England have been unlucky. As far as I'm aware, the pools for the World Cup were drawn the better part of two and a half years ago. And obviously it was based on the rankings at the time. So for that to be put in place so long ago and then to find three excellent teams in the one group I think England are generally unlucky as hosts because generally in, t- generally in tournaments you find that the host nation gets a bit of a free ride through the knockout stages not so England and so it proved at the weekend I think I think t- in my opinion it was less to do with England bottling it more to do with Wales's incredible desire and, and, and will to win the match I think that England got it right up until probably about half time but I just generally think they get nervous um, Twickenham probably hasn't seen an occasion like that for a rugby match for the best part of a couple of decades and when it got to 55-60 minutes and, and the Welsh were edging ever closer he just felt a tension in the air and ultimately that decision they, take, they took in the last minute to, to go for the try rather than, than kick for, for, um, for the level points ultimately proved to be their downfall. But we've so spoken about decision-making and making important calls at the right place at the right time in, in sports and uh, we discussed that in the NFL earlier this year. Again, though, this has got to be a decision that Rob Shaw, you think it's just nerves that's caused him to make take the wrong decision. It was a difficult kick, and actually kicking for touch might have been a far, a far easier opportunity then to try and go for the win and, and get a try rather than uh, kicking uh, the penalty and taking the tie. Well, what, I'm, I'm going to interject here and say that going for the try was the correct decision, but the execution was abysmal. <laughs> um, and this is the problem here. I have no confidence that if they'd gone for the kick, they'd have made it, simply because from that moment, Probably from when Burgess was taken off, England seemed to fall apart. And Paul was talking about the pressure. Now, Burgess is a player who's played in these big rugby league grand finals before and he can absolutely handle that kind of atmosphere. Now, why are the union bred players in the England team not able to deal with that kind of pressure and that kind of atmosphere? And you have to look to Lancaster. And also, we talk about the execution, not just of the attempt for the try, but from probably midway through the second half onwards, England were all over the place in midfield. They were giving away way too many penalties. 
England used to have a formidable maul ability, ability to maul, but they were nowhere. They should have been able to drive through with the with the line out. Why go for the first man? Okay, that's the safe option, but surely Wales were going to step off don't, and focus on rebuffing them all. And that's what they did. It's just poor execution. I was going to say, don't those penalties right though come up because of the kind of nerves and tension that is around this England side, you know, playing at Twickenham, hosting the Rugby World Cup and playing an arch rival like Wales? I mean, you can put the penalties down on that pressure and aren't we just seeing this in English sport in general uh, that English players succumb to this sort of pressure? I think, well, I think, I think, I think English players think succumb to pressure it. because they lack the technical chops. And I think that's the problem. And I think... Sorry, carry on, Paul. Go for it. Yeah, where'd I stole my thunder there? I was g- going to say, yeah, it brings into question how good this English team actually is. If you think back to pre-tournament and, and Rob Andrew was making it perfectly clear that he thought this team weren't good enough for this World Cup, but perhaps might have the experience for 2019. And I think he was doing his best to try and temper expectations. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to do that when the, when the event is on home soil. But how many genuine household names outside the confines of rugby are in this current England team? If you think back to the 2003 squad, there were guys that the average man in the street could name. Your Delali was your Johnsons, your Wilkinsons. I don't think this current England squad has got the depth of... McDonald going way over the buzzer there and way over it. I had to put it in twice to try and quieten him down and he still kept on going. Uh, we'll move away from the Rugby World Cup and England's uh, disastrous loss uh, to Wales and get back to football and talk about Barcelona. Lionel Messi out for about seven to eight weeks after he got injured against Las Palmas in their 2-1 victory last weekend. Missed out on the Champions League, of course, this week as well. Plenty of talk about whether Barca were going to collapse without Messi. But they got the job done in midweek. Gents, is Barca's season completely screwed the pooch already? without Lionel Messi for eight weeks? Well, it better not be if you've got Luis Suarez and Neymar on your team. <laughs> I mean, <it's laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, there is no excuse, is there? If Messi's down, but this is a Barca side that are more than capable of, of finding goals elsewhere. It just requires on Neymar and Suarez to step up then, I take it. Yeah. I think Barca, if you, if you look at the depth of squad, I think they might in the moment be regretting the fact that they let Pedro go because... They'll be forced to play probably either Munir or Sandro on the right flank, uh, given the fact that uh, Rafinha is also injured. I think from that point of view, they'll be disappointed that they made that sale. But Red is absolutely right. Any other team in the world would dream of having two players like Suarez and Pedro, sorry, sorry Suarez and Neymar, to step into the breach. And I think Suarez is beginning to do it already. His goal against Leverkusen was absolutely mm. out of this world. And, and he dragged them over the line against Las Palmas last weekend where he didn't, when the, the team themselves didn't play particularly well. So yeah... It is Messi's longest layoff in seven years, but if this team of players aren't capable of playing without him, then I don't think any team is in the world. But they, they are a side as well that lost to Celta Vigo with Lionel Messi before he got injured, so it, it doesn't mean that Barca's season was completely perfect going up to uh, the kind of pre-before injury and after injury, if you will. It's almost AD and BC. Um, uh, but Messi, uh, without without Messi this week, it was a big win against Leverkusen in the Champions League to show that they could take on a tough opposition and win and, and almost relieve that pressure immediately off the side. What was particularly interesting about that win was that um, they showed a willingness to mix it up um, when it became apparent that they weren't going to be able to pass Leverkusen to death. Um, and then, you know, the introduction of Sergio Roberto, vital and also bodes well moving forwards because you need the ability to switch things up, particularly when Messi's not around and you're probably going to have to slightly change Certainly, the way that Suarez moves will have to change slightly. So, yeah, no, I think I think they're in a good position. Um, I mean, bear in mind that with Spanish football, 
the moment Real Madrid or Barcelona has one bad result, it's the end of days. Mm. Teams lose sometimes. Um, and it's it's about how they roll through, particularly into February, March, after the winter break. And that's the really key phase of the Spanish league because that's when it starts the, the to get... Thing, yeah, the one thing I would say that I just read I touched on there, a lot of Barcelona's most difficult away games come before Christmas and they come when Lionel Messi's likely to be injured. So they get trips to Valencia, Sevilla... Right. Real Madrid in the Clasico. So the way that the calendar's worked out means that Barca have a much easier second half of the season in terms of where they need to travel to, which is unfortunate because it means that Messi is going to miss out on a lot of places in games where he has uh, historically dragged them through, particularly away in Seville. A lot of the time it's been Messi goals that have got them over the line there. And I think that might be a, a bit of a concern for Luis Enrique. I was going to say the uh, the absentee perhaps for the Clasico and of course the Champions League game against Roma as well, although it doesn't seem that that's going to be uh, a major effect on those group stages in the Champions League. Let's stay with the Champions League, gentlemen, move away from Barcelona. Uh, let's talk about Arsene Wenger. Arsenal stumbling again quite dramatically this year in the Champions League group stage at the moment. And a 3-2 loss to Olympiacos at home at the Emirates was a big shock to all those Arsenal fans walking out uh, of the Emirates on Tuesday night down in London. Gentlemen, is this the end of days starting to begin for Arsene Wenger? Because he can't get it done for Arsenal in the Champions League, Raider. It's been the end of days for Arsene Wenger for about five years. I mean, I kind of, if we look at it like a contemporary analogy, I'd say Wenger is the equivalent of Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and Jeremy Corbyn all rolled into one. <laughs> you know, he's living off former glories, managed to self-destruct spectacularly but is still somehow lingering around and it's interesting the way that he divides opinion among Arsenal fans and there's almost no rhyme or reason for who falls into the Wenger out or Wenger in camp I mean there are the pros are obviously he's deeply involved in the structure of the club he's overseen the way they've adapted to building a new stadium and in theory, we were all waiting for financial fair play regulations to come into effect, which would put Arsenal in a much stronger position competitively to the rest of Europe. Now, that's happened. It's been a couple of years, and it's the same old, same old. Mm. And, and this, 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 this kind of links to the problem that Wenger's had since the Invincibles, is that he doesn't seem to enjoy picking players who are mentally strong. I mean, there were reports yesterday, I wasn't at the Arsenal training ground, but the reports yesterday that at the Arsenal training ground, he laid into his players for not showing enough fight or spirit or mental strength. Now, that's his fault. He's the coach. He should either be acquiring and selecting and developing players who have those core mental attributes or finding a way to... Well, there's, there's, yeah, a whole, there's a, a whole load of things that happen no, it, at Arsenal, yeah. isn't there? I mean, you, you look at the, the fact that they struggle in the transfer window to bring in big uh, big players, the fact that their injuries seem to last forever when a four-week knock suddenly turns into a three-month absentee uh, from the squad. Uh, it's not just, I mean, things like confidence. Nothing seems to go according to plan for Wenger. Can you really be kind of looking at all of this sort of stuff and saying that this is Wenger's fault? I don't, I don't agree that they don't do things well in the transfer market because they've got players in that team that are the end of the world. They have uh, an Ozil and Sanchez, two guys that could probably get in any other team, obviously with the exception of Barcelona and Real Madrid, but any other team in the league would happily have them. And I, I, I just don't understand Wenger's logic. I, if I look at a guy like, like Patrick Vieira, when Wenger arrived in England, he brought Vieira with him because he knew he would need a guy like that who was, who was strong, powerful, physique, but also a, a technically gifted footballer as well when the, with the ball at his feet. And in the last 10 years since, since Vieira left the club, he has made absolutely no intent to replace that guy properly. 
It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering because he knows how important he was to that team. And yet he looks at that current team at the, at the moment and thinks, OK, I'm well stocked in that department. It's, it's baffling. I really, it's I really the same with his defensive signings as well. He's bringing in players like Gabriel. And it's like you think Arsenal's success under Wenger was founded on these grisly, hard centre-backs. Why doesn't... It, it, it is, and I think that's a problem in the transfer market. That's a problem with his transfer policy. He's obsessed with these five-a-side style players and sometimes he buys among the best players in the world in those positions but when you've got Mikel Arteta and Mathieu Flamini holding the midfield you've got there's a disconnect there's a there's a structural problem there they but Arsenal love playing that pass it around forever kind of football and Wenger will always seem to buy into that sort of uh, system and buy players to fit that I think yeah, they've always struggled to to bolster that midfield, as you say, Paul. Uh, we're not going to solve all of Arsenal's problems. Sammy Kadir has been available for a couple of years, and he's, he just hasn't moved for him. And he had an absolute stormer for Juve the other night. So the players are there. Uh, we will not be able to solve all of Arsenal's problems in uh, in three minutes, though. And we're going to have to move away uh, from Klopp. Wenger's calamities in... Uh, <laughs> Do you say Klopp? Klopp! <laughs> yeah. That's never gonna. That that won't happen. I don't think Klopp will uh, will want to spend money. I think, and uh, I don't think he'll be able to do it like he did with Dortmund. And the board won't like that at Arsenal. No way. Anyway, let's move away from football and talk about golf, uh, and talk about Jordan Spieth, the new stellar star of the golfing world. Twenty-two million US dollars made on the tour this year. A new record, of course, the FedEx Cup champion, the Tour champ, the US Masters uh, champion, and the US Open champion as well this year. What? An unbelievable season for a 22-year-old golfer. Uh, is this what golf needs? A Jordan Spieth, the character that golf needs after Tiger's slump and uh, seemingly just disappearance off the face of the planet now in the golfing world, Paul? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's poetic that um, just a couple of weeks after Tiger Woods retires for the remainder of the season with a back injury, one that I think he might struggle to come back from at all, uh, we see Jordan Spieth crowned as, as the world number one and, and the FedEx Cup champion. I think Spieth is a natural heir because he has all of the abilities and all of the attributes in his game that made Woods so good, particularly his temperament, but most noticeably his putting from long range and short. Um, his, his short range putting at both uh, majors he won this year was absolutely impeccable. But his ability to putt from 35, 40 feet and, and hold them, hold them on a, on a consistent basis is, is, is truly staggering. There's no one else in the tour that can put anywhere near like uh, like him. And if he manages to keep this up, it's going to be a, a very, very, very interesting battle next year between probably Rory, if he gets back to full fitness, and and um, Jason Day. Those three at the moment for me are out in the, on their own in, in, the, in the golf stratosphere in terms of uh, talent and ability and the ability to go in and win multiple majors. I just think it's a really exciting time for golf. And I think a lot of people worried post Woods whether golf would, would, would see a downturn in the viewership. But I think with these three guys there, and on, on, on three areas of the world where there is a historic um, love of golf, it, I think you might see a, a golden age of, of golf returning. Is it going to be better because it won't be a solo tour, if you will, like Tiger Woods was performing uh, back in his heyday? And in fact, because we have these uh, these great young golfers like McElroy, like Spieth, uh, and then you've got Day and Johnson as well. You know, you've got you've got four players at every single tournament that can compete. Does that make it more entertaining? And actually, is it better for golf to not be focused around one individual like we were with Tiger, and instead be looking at real competitive uh, major tournaments? 
I think the thing the thing with Tiger is it wasn't necessarily that it was the one man out on his own. It's just what he represented. Um, he kind of raised the bar in terms of golf personalities and a wider global interest in the sport, particularly regarding minorities. Um, so, I mean, I think he, he, he had his time. He changed the way golf is viewed and approached to an extent. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, you know, I think there needed to be something. Um, and the fact that you've got these three young guys or relatively young guys is really exciting because it kind of repositions golf as a sport that's maybe more accessible to young people than ever before. Um, yeah. Yes. 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 (laughs) Yes. It's going to be more entertaining for everybody. Paul, you're obviously a, a quite a big golf fan. Is is Spieth still charismatic enough, like Tiger was, to be able to carry almost golf on his shoulders, if you will, and, and attract that wider audience? Is Tiger Woods charismatic? I'm not. I'm not particularly convinced that he is. I think he, the reason why he became such an icon was the, the incredible backstory that Americans love about um, him being on television at two years old, putting on TV, then winning the Masters at the age of 21. They love that kind of um, story of, of progression from. Uh, having a talent at a young age all the way through to winning a major and obviously the, the fact that Red I mentioned about his background and his, the fact that he was mm-hmm. a minority th- those more play into the fact that he was such an iconic star rather than any personality so what Jordan Spieth is a bit of a robot but in order to master the game of golf you have to be have so single-minded and so dedicated in your approach that you might not be the most charismatic man to go for a pint with but it means you'll get a job done when it comes to majors, and it means you'll win $22.5 million in a single year like Jordan Spieth just managed. I'm, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. All right, I'm uh, limiting it now to uh, to 90 seconds on this last topic because we are running out of time here on the 20-minute hit, and we can't go over, that's for sure. Uh, Klitschko and Tyson Fury, the press conference last week after we finished recording turn, was an absolute farce in terms of Tyson Fury's Batman antics. Klitschko now wants to reschedule the fight due to a calf injury. Uh, it's around about November. That's yet to go through yet. Gentlemen, are we tired? of boxing and British boxers WWE style antics in these press conferences or is Klitschko actually afraid of Tyson Fury someone's got to make heavyweight boxing interesting <laughs> it's lost its spark a bit I guess Raider but uh, I mean it's just uh, there's just all these immobile guys with big reaches just slogging out that's that is in part because of the Klitschkos and the way they fight as well. Though I mean they they've been dominating the sport now for the last uh, five years or so, and uh, and hey, that's uh, that's the style that they fight. I mean you've got to fight fire with fire, no? And also, um, mixed martial arts has stolen a lot of the thunder and a lot of the audience and a lot of the glamour from um, the sort of heavier weights of boxing. So uh, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's a difficult one. Mm. Do you want absolute maniacs like Tyson Fury? disrupting the establishment or um, do we want to see some proper fights between guys who can move? But it seems to be a trend in British boxing with these big fighters that they'll perform these sort of antics just to hype a fight up like we had with the Hay uh, Chisora fight in a press conference a few years back as well, Paul. That's just because they're not any good. Who's the last genuinely great heavyweight boxer? Well, Who's the last one? I'm going to tell you that Anthony Joshua is going to be the next one. Let's put it that way. But, he, uh, he he, he's exciting. He is exciting, I'll give you that, but he's not there yet. What was the, Not only who's the last great heavyweight boxer, what was the last great heavyweight boxing bout that you watched? Yeah. Because I think we need to go all the way back to Holyfield versus Lewis. That's how oh, long ago yeah. you're talking. That's how, that's how long ago that heavyweight boxing's been in the gutter. And we're, we're, we're light years away from the, the heyday of, of Ali and Frazier in, in, the, in the 70s and then, and, and then the, the, the boxing talent of Tyson in the 80s and 90s. We're miles away from that at the moment. And Tyson Fury turned up at a press conference from a Batman outfit 
isn't going to change that fact. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. It, it doesn't make it interesting. It just makes it comedic, really. I think yeah. to have a really, I think to have a really interesting heavyweight division, you need fighters who are mobile as well as big, who have that kind of mobility. And I think, yeah, I mean, you were talking about how Klitschko's kind of the Klitschko's have ruined it for everyone because, in theory, David Hay could have been. He was a great cruiserweight. He was quick. He was agile. He was big enough, but not too big. He had good hand skills, yeah, but, but when you're fighting against Klitschko, you have to fight on the inside, and it's impossible to fight him on the inside because he's so big. Well, hey, so, Blue, so it's kind of yeah, it has. I see what you mean. Hey, hey, hey Blue is charmed with the uh, with the whole toe injury as well. Anyway, I mean, we were expecting a lot more than that, and for him to put out that performance and then blame it on the toe injury, you should have just delayed the fight and kept us all interested. We've only got a few seconds left here on the twenty minute hit, so enough time to thank Raider Mayer for coming for joining us on the show. Paul, I'll catch up with you next week as well. That is all the time we've got for you this week. We will be back in seven days with more sports stories. Until then, enjoy the debate. We'll be back in seven days' time. Have a good one.